You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Well, this seems bad. Apple announced last week that they're going to be installing new software on iPhones and other Apple devices, installing it on new devices before they're sold, and remotely installing it on existing ones, including the phone in your pocket right now. And this new software is going to scan the photos stored on your iPhone or iCloud for known and registered images of child porn. And quoting the Washington Post here, the new software will also... Quote, scan messages sent using Apple's iMessage service for texts and photos that are inappropriate for minors. You can still send text messages that are inappropriate for minors, but if you send a photo or text deemed sexually explicit to a minor, it will be blurred. And the minor will have to click on it to unblur it, but first they'll be warned that their parents are going to be notified if they click on it. The story at the Post continues, Apple's move raises new questions about the nature of smartphones and who really owns the computers in our pockets. Because the new software will perform scans on its users' devices without their knowledge or explicit consent. Okay, this is when people jump up and say, hey, if you're not doing anything wrong, if you don't have anything to hide, you don't have anything to worry about. And Apple wants us to know that there's only a one in a trillion chance of a person being incorrectly flagged, incorrectly accused of making or distributing child porn or grooming a minor for sex. And if a photo or message of yours is flagged, it will be reviewed by humans, by Apple employees, not by software, before the cops are called. And those Apple employees would never collect or share or post the non-criminal photos of yours that might have crossed their desks. One in a trillion makes it sound like it couldn't really happen to anyone being incorrectly flagged and reported to authorities for sharing or storing images of child porn or grooming a minor for sex. But with hundreds of billions of text messages being exchanged every day and trillions of photos already stored on people's phones, doesn't that mean I'm terrible at math, but isn't that Apple essentially saying, you know, there's a one in a trillion chance of an innocent person being caught up in this, like Apple saying hundreds or thousands of people every year are going to be flagged and dozens or hundreds may be falsely accused of distributing child porn or grooming minors for sex. Those are accusations that have the power to destroy a person's life. And I can easily imagine scenarios where people with nothing to hide, people who've done nothing wrong, are falsely accused. Setting aside the possibility that you may have an innocent photo of your own kid in a bathtub as a toddler that bears a close enough resemblance to a known CSA image, that is child sexual abuse image, that that photo of yours gets flagged and setting aside, setting aside all the grandmas out there swapping photos of their grandchildren at bath time. What about the guy who goes on a hookup app and swaps explicit messages And photos with someone he thinks is an adult because that person said they were an adult. Turns out that person is a minor and the messages that adult thought he was swapping with another adult are being forwarded to that minor's parents and then on to the authorities. Let's say some troll sends you a text message from a burner phone or DMs you from some throwaway Instagram account and that DM includes an image 
of the sexual abuse of a child. That image exists on your phone now, doesn't it? I have about 800 DMs from strangers on my Instagram account right now that I haven't looked at. I don't know what's in there. Is Apple going to be able to distinguish between an image lurking on your phone because some asshole sent it to you without your knowledge or your consent and images you've downloaded and stored and shared? Let's say a 17-year-old boy has a 16-year-old girlfriend and that boy turns 18 and suddenly he's an adult dating a minor and the text messages he's exchanging with his girlfriend start getting flagged and his girlfriend's parents learn from those text messages that their daughter is sexually active. You know, I predict that the first prosecution of someone as a result of Apple's new policy here isn't going to be a child pornographer, but a black teenage boy with a white girlfriend whose parents are racist. Arguing that tech companies should be able to preemptively search our phones to catch criminals, and I think making or sharing child porn is a fucking crime and that people who do it should be caught and prosecuted. But if you can make a case for searching all of our phones to catch those criminals, how do you argue against the police being able to search our homes whenever they want? Because odds are, not just good, odds are 100%, so not odds at all, but certainties, odds are that someone somewhere is committing a heinous crime in their home right now, and if the police could search our homes at will or could install cameras in our homes with AI technology that scan our homes 24-7, observing everything we say and everything we do, yeah, we could catch a lot of people who are committing heinous crimes. Look, the intentions here are good, golden, I get it. People who make or share images and videos of children being raped need to be caught and adults who were raped as children on camera feel violated and re-traumatized when those images are circulated and shared and reposted. I ache for them. I do. But creating a backdoor on all our devices, reading all of our messages, scanning all of our photos, that's not just a slippery slope, as the Electronic Freedom Foundation pointed out in a press release last week. That is a fully built system just waiting for external pressure to be abused. The abuse cases are easy to imagine. The Electronic Freedom Foundation continues. Governments that outlaw homosexuality might require the classifier to be trained to restrict apparent LGBTQ plus content, or an authoritarian regime might demand that the classifier, Apple in this case, be able to spot popular satirical images or protest flyers and pull them down. It's a system being built with good intentions, just waiting there, sitting there on a shelf, ready to be abused by authoritarian regimes, which are no longer some distant hypothetical threat. More and more people all over the world are living under authoritarian regimes. And the rest of us, including us right here in the United States, we are living under the very real threat of an authoritarian takeover right now, right here. On that bummer note, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And coming up on the Magnum, comedian Jen Kirkman joins me to talk about women in comedy and women comedians going to play comedy clubs where their toxic exes might be sitting in the audience and what women comedians can do about that. We also talk about other stuff with Jen Kirkman. She is hilarious. We had a great time. She is on the Magnum that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan. I have a bit of a situation where I am seeing an ex of mine and it's been going really well. However, he's still kind of entangled with his ex and their child. They saw each other for three years and the little girl was three when they started dating. She's now 11. And as a result of that, 
uh, I'm a secret. So uh, he literally wanted to take me to a hotel room. I would just like, don't feel comfortable with like constantly being this sort of secret mistress. And uh, it was mostly out of nervousness that if she were to come by, that she would flip out and not let him see the child. So he's sort of expressed to me that like, it has to be this way because if she were to find out about me, then she would freak out and maybe he can't see the little girl. And I get that. I admire it. I respect it. However, I'm starting to get kind of grossed out by it because I don't want to be a secret. And we were taking a nap on the couch the other day and there was a knock at the door from an Amazon delivery and both of us almost jumped out of our skin thinking like, ah, is she, you know, is she, she here? And I just, I don't, I don't know. I feel like me making an ultimatum is me almost being selfish because I don't think I deserve to say, like, I don't think you should, you know, you need to tell her because I don't want to be a secret. And I also kind of want to be a priority in my person's life, but I feel like I'm being like a selfish jerk by asking for that. So I don't know if, if I am. Just so we're clear, the guy that you're dating now is single. We're talking about his ex. He was with her for three years. When he first got together with her, this kid was three years old. And now this kid is 11 years old, which means by doing the math correctly here, your current boyfriend and his ex that he co-parented this child with for a while broke up five years ago, met when the kid was three, broke up three years later, kid's now 11. So what's going on here is your boyfriend's ex-girlfriend is demanding that he remain celibate for the rest of his life or not get into a relationship with anybody else for the rest of his life as a condition of being able to see this kid, that a kid whose life he's been a part of now for eight years, a kid who may see him as a, a parental figure, a father figure, a kid you say that he's helped to raise, man, that is some deeply shitty behavior. That is taking a kid hostage. That's putting your own petty, small, shitty needs over the best interest of your own child in an effort to control your ex. Ugh. Before making a decision about what you should do here, and I think you are perfectly within your rights to issue an ultimatum that you don't want to be the dirty little secret, that you're not going to sneak around, that you're not going to submit to this ultimatum that's been issued to him yourself. You're not going to settle for this kind of treatment. I would ask you to Take a step back, take a look from 30,000 feet, and look at the child. What does the child need? If the child's parent, custodial parent, the mother of this child, is this selfish and manipulative, it's probably a really great thing. I mean, it's understandable that the guy you're seeing is no longer with this person, if they're that selfish, that manipulative. It's also probably a really good thing for that kid, that child, that he is still in her, his or her, I don't remember, in their life. And so if you can suck it up for, oh my God, six or seven more years until that child is an adult, that's a big ask. But maybe at least for another year or two, you could suck it up. Maybe you could give him an ultimatum that's got a 12 or 24 month 
time limit on it where he can begin to work on his ex to get her to a place where she has to accept that he is going to have relationships with other women, hypothetical women, women who do not yet exist, right, in the future and roll you out eventually, bring you out of the shadows. You no longer have to sneak around if he works on it for 12 months or 24 months. So there isn't an abrupt cutting off. So he doesn't suddenly disappear from the life of this child who I'm guessing really needs him in their life. If this is the mom they're saddled with a mom who would a parent who would weaponize access to that child to the benefit of that child, access to that child by, by, by someone who played a parental role in that child's life, someone that child probably wants in their life and needs in their life in order to control their ex. Oh, my gosh. I know I'm asking a lot of you here, and, and you, don't have, you can totally disregard my advice. You don't have to take this kid's feelings or needs into consideration. You are allowed to be selfish about this. I say this as someone who dated a few closet cases in my time. It is no fun. I get it to be someone's dirty little secret. It is no fun. I've been there jumping up off the couch when there's a knock on the door. I've been there. No fun. I understand if you don't want to do that shit anymore. But I would pin a gold star on you if you did that shit for another 12 or 24 months because after taking as impassioned a view, as impassioned a look as you could at the situation, if you decided it was something you were willing to do for that kid. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a cis straight woman in my thirties, and I'm calling to get some advice about how to give men feedback on oral sex. I previously had a short-term relationship with a guy who was recently separated when we met. It took a little while for the sexual aspect of the relationship to get going, and due to some circumstances, we were never able to get into a sexual groove. When the sex finally began, I learned that he struggled to stay hard once a condom was applied. Unfortunately, I'm unable to be on the pill or any hormonal birth control. I began exploring alternatives, but in the meantime, the focus shifted away from PIV and on to me getting off from oral. The problem was that his technique wasn't working for me. I wanted to give him instruction, but sadly, it wasn't as simple as right there, softer, to the left. He was really off base, and I could tell I would just never get off with his approach, which involved a lot of intense sucking on my clit and licking up and down. I think I need more pressing and like a very focused pressure on my clit in a very small circular, maybe even counterclockwise motion. I only know the latter from a comment an ex once made, but I really struggle with explaining that and providing instruction. I sympathize with men because it isn't straightforward. And from what I hear from friends, if it's not happening for them, they'll just give up and initiate sex. So it's possible men don't even get much instruction on it. In this context, where the guy is already finding it difficult to stay hard, I felt even more self-conscious giving him constructive criticism on his oral technique, and I always feel like I'm navigating a fragile ego in this area, especially when it's with a new partner. Soon after a night when he tried endlessly to get me off to no avail, he ended things, and I never knew if it was because of that issue. Regardless, I just don't feel like I know how to broach the subject in the moment without making it really awkward. What words or phrases to use? Any advice is welcome, and I'd really like to hear from other women about how they have given men instruction on oral sex, and also from men how they'd like to be told how to do it differently in a way that wouldn't deflate them or kill the moment. Would they rather it in the moment or afterward? 
Any experiences with giving or getting useful feedback would be great. Thanks. Okay, so the guy who is in your bed, between your legs, eating your pussy, he doesn't know how to eat your pussy. I know how to eat your pussy because you told me. I could eat your pussy right now. Pressing, focused pressure, small circular motions, counterclockwise. It's a little fucked up that the fag with the podcast has a better idea about how to eat your pussy than the straight guy who is just in your bed, just between your legs, because you could tell me, but you couldn't bring yourself to tell him. You could tell me and all my, all my listeners know how to eat your pussy now, but the guy you're fucking doesn't know how to eat your pussy. It's not constructive criticism. It is helpful direction if you tell someone how you like it. And I know we're supposed to pretend that eating pussy is some great mystery, whereas sucking a dick is obvious. But you know what? Sucking a dick ain't obvious either. Some guys like a lot of suction pressure on the head. Some guys don't. Some guys like a tight airlock seal and some guys like the lips to be loose. Some guys like you pull on the balls a little bit. Some guys like you to cup the balls. Some guys don't want you to touch their balls. Some guys like a finger in the butt. Some guys don't like a finger in the butt. You find those things out when you suck a dick by asking or by doing and weighing their the feedback you're getting, whether they seem to be enjoying it. Now, sometimes you wind up in bed with somebody and I say, this is a person with a dick. And I had to shift to sucking dick here as an example because I have no experience actually eating pussy, even though I know how to eat your pussy. Sometimes you're with a guy who does it wrong and isn't like taking in your feedback and you have to say, don't pull my balls. You have to say, don't suck the head of my cock so hard. And it's helpful because you don't want them expending all this time and effort trying to get you off doing something that isn't working. And they don't want to expend all that time and effort doing something that isn't working. They don't want to fly blind. That time he ate your pussy forever and couldn't get you off and left feeling frustrated. He's a right to feel a little bit frustrated because of the way men and women are. Ultimately, the patriarch used to blame that in the moment you were too inhibited to, to, to say anything to him because you were afraid of – making his dick fall off by saying something that he might, because of fragile male ego, perceive as critical. But he needed information in that moment, information you didn't give him, but you gave me. So what do you do? In the future, you disinhibit. In the future, you err on the side of telling the guy what he needs to know so he doesn't waste your time and his. And I know you can do it because you literally... Just did it. Actually, let's go to the tape. I think I need more pressing and like a very focused pressure on my clit in a very small circular, maybe even counterclockwise motion. There, there, what you said right there. You did it. You can do it. You can say it out loud. You didn't hem. You didn't haw. You didn't have to force the words out of your mouth. You said it and you said it to a man. I know you said it to a gay man. A gay man is never going to eat your pussy. A gay man that you're not in the same room with, but you said it to a man. Good practice for saying it to the men who actually need to hear it. Your sex partner, your next sex partner, say it to him like you said it to me. And if you can't bring yourself to say it to him, just go to the tape. Hi, Dan and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 41-year-old bi male, and I'm in a long-term relationship that is now 15 years old. I've been married for 12 and I have two, two young kids with my partner who's a woman and she's 
also by our relationship has really gotten bad over the last few years since we've had our kids. Um, we have a five-year-old daughter and a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and we both really love the children so, so much. And, you know, it really is the reason why we're still together at this point. You know, we're essentially co-parenting together, but don't really have that connection anymore like many couples like us with young kids. But, you know, we've also, we were having some issues before the kids came along and uh, mainly about kind of like where to live and, you know, what exactly we kind of wanted to do after graduate school. You know, we've been through counseling now with like three different counselors and it just really doesn't seem to be changing. You know, there's just a ton of resentment that we have with each other and can't really connect. And basically, you know, I'm at this point where I just don't know what the best move is. I mean, I, I know for me personally that the right move is to not be in the same type of relationship that I'm in now with my wife. Like it's just, it's not good. We fight a lot and there's nothing physical or anything like that, but it's just a lot of like verbal conflict and poor communication and just like modeling behavior between each other that I really don't like to show to our kids. Like, I don't want them to think that our relationship is normal, but I also know that we have, we are able to support each other in these really concrete logistical ways. Like we live in an expensive area and we finally were able to buy a home together and it's in like a good neighborhood with good schools. And basically like neither one of us would be able to afford this home or in this area independently. I don't know what to do. Like I, you know, I know there's this tipping point where it's actually better for our kids, for my wife and I to separate, but I just don't know if we're there yet. The kids, you know, are, are happy and healthy for the most part, but they also, you know, they fight between themselves quite a bit. And I hear them sometimes saying things to each other that I know they've heard from us. You know, I just really don't know what to do. And I just want to do right by my children and myself. Yeah, it's not good if you're seeing or hearing, overhearing your kids fight with each other using the kind of contemptuous language that you and your wife address each other with when you fight. That's a bad sign that you probably shouldn't still be together, that it's not in the best interest of the kids if you're still together. If the relationship is a high conflict one, then it's impacting your kids and who they are and how they treat other people. That's a sign that you should probably call it. Difficult question, though. It's expensive to get divorced. It's expensive to have two households. I would encourage you and your wife while you have these conversations about ending your marriage, which really just radically changes how you define your relationship. You're still going to be in a relationship. Sometimes people get divorced and then they suddenly have a really great relationship with their ex-spouse because all of their expectations change. Suddenly they're not accountable to each other in the same way. They don't feel implicated by each other in the same ways. They're free to do or see other people if that's what they want to do. And suddenly they have a great relationship and they tap back into the rapport they may have had early in the relationship when they were friends. And it seems to me that sometimes you might want to just skip to the divorce and go to that point where you just radically alter all of your expectations and assumptions uh, about what you owe each other. And it seems to me that's something that people should be able to do. We can stay married 
for economic reasons, can stay married to parent, and maybe we can drain the conflict from the relationship if we just let go of all of these sometimes toxic expectations that people can have of the person who is their officially designated legal spouse. But if that's not possible, then divorce. But because economically that's going to be a big lift for you guys in the area that you live and maybe you don't want to disrupt your children's lives. You say you picked the place where you live and struggled to buy the house that you have now because there are good schools. Well, then I would advise you and your wife to look into what's called a nesting arrangement, which is rather than both parents moving out, both parents getting new places and the kids bopping back and forth between mom and dads, you keep the home, you keep the family home. And the parents, instead of the kids going back and forth, the parents go back and forth. You guys get an apartment together, a small apartment together because the kids are never going to be in it or they don't have to be in it, where when it's your week off, you go and live in that apartment. And then when it's your wife's week off, you go live at the house with the kids and she goes and stays in the apartment. And you guys trade places. Again, rather than the kids going back and forth, the parents go back and forth. Most of what I've read about these arrangements, these nesting arrangements, suggests that they should be temporary, that as the kids adjust to their the end of the parents' marriage, that having the familiarity of the family home, even if the family – it's not a family coming apart. Even if their parents are no longer going to be married to each other, that can really help the kids with that transition. And it's usually framed as still a transition and ultimately the family home has got to go. But there are cases where people indefinitely – held onto the family home and instead of having to maintain two households that were large enough for both parents to have both the kids over, they or the kid over, they had one apartment, even a studio apartment that was for mom or dad or dad or dad or mom or mom, depending on whose week on or off it was. You could make that work if you can get to a place, I think, with your soon-to-be ex-wife where you have in divorce, what you don't seem to be able to have right now in marriage, and that is a low-conflict relationship. Whatever it takes to get there, to that low-conflict point, that's what's in the best interests of your kids. And you should work constructively with your wife on getting there. That might mean going to a fourth counselor, but rather than seeing a couple's counselor, you might want to see instead an uncoupling counselor. Props to Gwyneth Paltrow. Hi, Dan. 30-year-old straight cis lady. Ever since I was younger, I've had this like very strong identification sexually with like gay men. I like my youngest sexual fantasies all involved gay men, not necessarily where I was like fantasizing about watching them, but where I was, you know, picturing myself as a dude with other dudes and you know I would even like stuff my underwear with socks at night so it felt like I had a dick and then you know even something like as soon as I started getting boobs which I got really early and they ended up being big I was disgusted by them and I even ended up getting a breast reduction in college and you know people weren't really talking about body dysmorphia at the time so I didn't have the words for it but now Looking back, I realize that's definitely what it was. Like, I remember trying to be like, how small can we go? Like, wanting probably to really just have no boobs at all, but not having the language for that. So, romantically and day to day, I do 
feel totally normal in my body and fine as a straight woman dating, you know, straight men. But sexually, I, you know, sometimes just picture myself having a dick and I'm really cock-focused in bed. Like, I've also wondered if I just have, like, a dick fetish, whether it's me having the dick, there being dicks on me, like dicks are just a huge part of my sexuality. <laughs> I know there isn't necessarily a term for everything, but you know, I sexually do feel a little queer, but I don't want to take that word on or that identity on for myself since I am able to just kind of get by as a cis woman. But then other than just being kinky or having like a dick fetish, I don't really know like how to identify this. And, you know, I'm lucky to have had lots of like really open partners where I can talk about this and, you know, play it out in the bedroom. But yeah, I would just like to know, I guess, more if you know anything more about something like this, like maybe normally or like in your day to day life feel fine in your body but sexually maybe feel more like not cis sexual orientation and gender identity industrial complex has been hard at work for the last 20 years coming up with terms and labels for everyone and guess what there is one for you and i think you should embrace it girl fag a girl fag is a cis woman who identifies with gay culture or gay sex and feels like a gay man. You sound, when you talk about dick, when you wax poetic about dick, kind of like a gay dude. Not that all gay dudes have dicks. Not that all dicks have gay dudes. You can be a gay dude without a dick. You can be into gay dudes who don't have dicks or you can be agnostic on the whole dick thing and like dudes with or without dicks but dicks usually come with dudes and gay dudes usually come with dicks and there's a strong association between dicks and gay dudes and you're just kind of a girl fag and that's great what you described the way you what you felt growing up sounds like gender dysphoria most people who experience gender dysphoria ultimately come to peace or terms with the sex they were assigned at birth. Not everyone with gender dysphoria transitions. Not everyone who transitions has gender dysphoria. So you haven't done anything wrong. And it's not that you aren't living authentically. It is possible that if you were growing up now, if you're 13 or 14 years old now, you might transition and that would be fine. And you would live as a gay male. But it doesn't sound like you are publicly identified as a cisgender female and you're very upset about that. And you're still experiencing dysphoria or the harm that can come with, but not doesn't always come with gender dysphoria. You sound fully at peace. Sounds like you're just looking for a label. And like I said, the sexual orientation and gender minority industrial complex has been hard at work coming up with labels for everybody. And you have one girl fag. And if you want to call yourself when you're fucking around with a cisgender dude that you're dating, you want to call yourself a gay man or have him call you a gay man or like so many gay men do like to be called fag when you're fucking around and having sex and sucking his dick or making him suck yours because you can have all the dick you want. You can strap on as many dicks as you care to. You have my blessing. No 
committee of gay men is going to burst into the room and yank the dick out of your drawer or slap the dick out of your mouth at that moment when you tell your boyfriend to call you a fag. You don't have to worry about it. You can play with identity. If the gender nonconforming trans movements have taught us anything, it's that gender is a social construct and we're all allowed to fuck around with that, construct our own genders, deconstruct our own genders and play and engage and eroticize. Sounds to me like this is deeply erotic for you. You have an erotic response as we all do to our own bodies and to the bodies of the people that we sleep with or identify with. And that is legitimate. So please enjoy dick. Enjoy thinking about having a dick. Enjoy thinking about being a cockhound kind of gay guy whenever you want. And you don't have to reconcile those identities. They can exist in you simultaneously. They can exist in you side by side. The cisgender woman that you are comfortable being and moving through the world perceived as, but also that inner cock-hungry, big-dicked gay guy you also know yourself to be, you big girl fag you. Hey, Dan. Two of my really good friends are engaged and they're getting married. Um, One of them is a woman and the other one is a trans man. The problem is, though, that the, the trans man, his family does not approve of um, his pronouns or being called husband or anything like that. And they're demanding that they take that out of their marriage ceremony and that they refer to him in her pronouns and things like that. And it's really causing a strain on their marriage to the point where they want to cancel their wedding. And it's just super heartbreaking and it fucking pisses me off so much. And They don't want any drama at their wedding. I'm part of their wedding party. So what can I do to be supportive without completely like throwing hands at the wedding with his closed-minded family members? I like just want them to know that they are loved. And I tell them what you say, which is use your presence as leverage with your family but I'm not really sure that they're capable or I'm not sure what their situation is for that. But so how can I be supportive and how can I make this day for them the best without their shitty family getting in the way? It must have occurred to your friends to cancel the invitations they sent to his family of origin instead of canceling the fucking wedding. That is the obvious answer. That is the obvious, correct, right move here. His family is insisting on misgendering him. His family is insisting, trying to dictate to him and his fiance what kind of wedding they're going to have, who is going to be gendered in which, what way at this wedding to please them. And I'm just inferring from your call that they're contemplating this. Your friend and his fiance are wrestling with what to do here how to accommodate his family of origins, bigotry and assholery so that they'll come to the wedding? At what price emotionally for your friend? Is it worth it to have his fucking asshole family at this wedding? Don't invite them. Yank the invites back. Change the date of the wedding. Move it to a different venue. Whatever your friend needs to do to protect himself from the wedding. He can call his family of origin and say, look, You are welcome to come to my wedding where I will be the groom, where there will be a groom on the fucking cake. The bitter irony here, of course, is it seems that his family of origin is fine with 
their son marrying another woman so long as their son pretends to be a woman marrying a woman. So they're fine with the lesbian wedding somehow, but they're not fine with the straight wedding that the son has planned. My, my head is exploding at that bigoted straddle. But that would seem to indicate that his family on some, in some way is partway there. Too much to say halfway there. They're down with gay weddings. They just have to come the rest of the way around and be down with an opposite sex wedding that involves a trans person who happens to be their son, their brother. They're not going to get there if they can throw a fit and the fit will be successful. You know, children, little infants, two-year-olds, toddlers, they throw fits and they keep throwing them if they work. Right now, your friend's family, his family of origin, throwing a fit. And right now it's working. He's contemplating, I guess, identifying as a woman on the day of the wedding to please his family, to mollify the bigots and asshole in his family. And so the tantrum, the fit that his family is throwing, it's working. It's going to keep working so long as he allows it to work on him. So, you know, you want to support your friend. You don't want to make him feel like he's pissing off his family and pissing off his friends too, and he's taking fire from all sides. you got to go to him and say, look. You just have to encourage him to open his eyes and say, look, this is what you got to do. You're not going to be the first person whose parents boycotted his wedding, and you probably won't be the last person whose parents boycotted his wedding. There are a lot of... Lesbian couples out there, married women in same-sex relationships, not all of them lesbians, whose parents didn't come to their wedding. And gay couples whose parents didn't come to their wedding. There are going to be some marriages involving one or more trans or gender nonconforming or non-binary people whose parents don't fucking come to the wedding. And you know what? A wedding is about your future. Your parents about your past. You want the support and love of the people who are supporting and loving you hopefully all along to carry with you into the future while they're still around. But a wedding is about creating a new family credit to Armistead Maupin. I sometimes see this bounce around on the internet credited to me. I didn't say this first. I've always been really careful to credit Armistead Maupin, the terrific writer tells of the city for this. There is your biological family and there is your logical family. What you do at a wedding, fingers crossed, if it works, is you create, you find your logical family. And it's not all about marriage. A lot of people's logical families involve a web of lovers and friends, all a part of your logical family. But certainly, hopefully, the person you marry is the most logical part of your logical family. You want your biological family to come along. But if they don't fit into your logical family, you got to cut them out. And you got to be firm with them. You got to say to them, I love you. I appreciate everything you've done for me. I love you unconditionally, but my presence comes with conditions. And your desire to be present at my wedding comes with conditions that you love and support me, that you recognize, in this case, my gender identity and celebrate it because it's an important part of me. And if you can't, don't come. Don't make yourself present. I don't want you there. That's what your friend needs to say. And let me tell you, 
tons of gays and lesbians. And I'm sure your trans friend knows tons of gays and lesbians. We know, and bisexual people, we know from personal experience that if you're firm, nine times out of 10 these days, used to be one or two times out of 10, 30, 40 years ago, nine times out of 10 these days, if you're firm, you don't put up with the tantrum, if you don't allow yourself to be manipulated, they come around but they don't come around while the tantrums work. They don't come around until you prove to them that you are willing to use the leverage that you have in that relationship as an adult child, and that is your presence, or in the case of your wedding, allowing them to be in your presence. So don't cancel the wedding. Cancel those invites. Hi, Dan. This straight woman who moved from one city to another during a pandemic as a result of a breakup. And I have a qu- etiquette question for you. I am a stand-up comedian and I have a bad relationship with my ex. Uh, I've noticed that during the pandemic, since I moved away, even though I've blocked them on everything, they've somehow seen my stand-up from Zoom shows and have been harassing me about it. I do mention having an ex and going through a breakup in the standup, but it's really neither here nor there. I'm allowed, I'm allowed to say what I want to say. That's nothing, you know, calling anybody out. It's just saying that. But like I said, I've noticed that they've been tuning into my zoom shows because there was a glitch where suddenly I was getting texts from them, even though I had lost them. Anyhow, I just got a gig performing back in my old city at the end of the summer. And I really want to, go to it, obviously. And I want to share about it on social media because that's how I get people in seats. And that's, I do want to let my friends know that I'm performing that weekend, but I'm just wary about it because if my ex has been tuning into my zoom shows and getting upset by it, there's nothing there's, I have no faith that they won't show up to these in-person shows. So I'm stuck. I, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but I also would feel just awful if they came. So I don't know if I should ask one of our old mutual friends, none of whom have talked to me since, by the way, but I don't know if it's worth reaching out to one of our mutual friends to ask him to ask him not to come, or if I should ask the bar that just, it all seems so dramatic. And I just like, I just don't want him to come. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Jen Kirkman, comedian with two stand-up specials on Netflix, streaming right now. Also a writer on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime and host of No Fun, the Jen Kirkman podcast. Hey, Jen, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I am beyond excited. I really feel like I have a unique skill set to help you with this. So, or not help well, you, I've but help the listener. I've seen both your specials. I, I love Mrs. Maisel. I've listened to your podcast. And when I, this question came into my inbox and I just thought, I got to get Jen Kirkman on the phone. I got to get Jen Kirkman on the phone because you talk so much about sexism and misogyny in comedy. Yeah. Uh, right now you've been doing a lot of tweeting about comedy clubs who aren't booking women. Here's a woman who's been booked, but she's got a problem. Yeah. Uh, and I just felt like you were the, would have the, the perfect perspective and some valuable insight for this. I topic. think I do. Now, there's going to be a a percentage that's just a tiny bit tough love towards the comedian. But let's validate everything that she needs validated up front. Whatever her ex is doing with the stock, you know, let's just lowercase s stalking, you know, kind of being all up Mm -hmm. in her business. I'm not getting a sense exactly if he's volatile, possibly violent, um, the type to, you know, spread rumors or do some kind of revenge, whatever, if he's going to 
post emails she sent him or texts or naked pictures. I don't know. I didn't get a sense of if he's a threat on that end, you know? Um, we, we have to assume that, you know, if we don't have facts and evidence and they would be super relevant facts if they existed, yeah. that that's probably not the yeah. case here. It sounds like he's watching her shows in her Zoom uh, commenting, sending her feedback that's unwelcome because she wants him the fuck out of yeah. her life. Well, I think, um, unfortunately, she needs, I think she has set that boundary. And at this point, it's almost like she has to wait for him to go away. But there was one nugget that I think as a comedian, I, I clued into to my dear lady in comedy. She mentioned something uh, that she talks about it in her act, this breakup, this ex. Mm-hmm. And then I heard mm-hmm. a little, you know, just a quick little, and I can say whatever I want. You know, that kind of, we comedians love that, right? Whether we're an alt-right comedian who's like, look, I'm a white guy who loves to say the N-word, free speech, I can say what I want, right? We all get defensive, uh, even if we're nice ladies that are like, look, I'm trying to talk about my experience. Now, here's the thing. As a comedian, whatever we're talking about, there's usually a reason. So let's say I imitate my mom a lot in my act. Now, my mom might tell, you know, say something very funny about sex, but I'll always have a deeper point of view about that bit. And I'll go into further, this is what it was like, you know, in the 50s, you know, to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. That's what my mom grew up. So I would say I get she has every right to talk about her ex and her act, but can she not see where that is so tempting for him to want to monitor? I would even argue that is why. He is still so engaged. And in a way, I, I don't want to use the term asking for it, but I would say um, the psychological term would be there's a reward she's getting from it that maybe she doesn't know mm-hmm. she's getting. You know, we get bad rewards sometimes, right? Um, so in doing that behavior, I just ask her, what's the crux of the bit? Is the bit about breakups? Is it about how we feel after a breakup? Is it about, you know, um, there's a million angles with a breakup. So talk about that without mentioning that it was a comic, without mentioning that it was recent. Can you change the timeline? Can you say it was from five years ago? Can it seem like it's about someone else? Because I do think it's a little accidentally inflammatory. And I, I do agree. She's allowed to say whatever she wants, but he is not telling her not to say anything. You know, this isn't a moment of empowerment where she's going to speak out against something. This is really about her making a mature decision to know that this bit may not be worth all this drama if she really wants him out of her life. And that there's a way to do the bit if she finds what the heart of the bit is really about that that has nothing to do with him. So when you date a comedian, when you date a writer, uh, you're sort of signing up perhaps to be mined. Yeah. A lot of comedians get on stage. They talk about their personal life. They talk about their dating life. They talk about their romantic histories. So is it really that provocative? Particularly since the guy she dated also is a comedian. Is it that provocative for her? Given what they should both understand about what they do for a living to be talking about. We only understand it on paper, but it's always provocative. When I was getting a divorce, I got a book deal during the divorce proceedings. And my -hmm. husband at the time knew that I was pitching a book about not wanting kids. But a big part of the book and the reason the publishers wanted it is they wanted the perspective of a woman who was married and didn't want kids. Not just married, like I'd been single, but so that women who are married could read it and go, yeah, see, it doesn't mean like you change your mind once you get married. If you don't want kids, you don't want kids. And uh, my husband understood on paper. He was fine with it when we were together that I talked about our life together without you know hurting him or being mean to him. But once we weren't together, it was... A problem. And Mm -hmm. he became a totally different person. You know, he was very, uh, not a totally different person, but he had a totally different opinion. He was very upset about it. He didn't even want me to mention, I had a husband, we were married and we we didn't want kids. Like I said, I won't say your name. I won't say, he was just like, 
I don't want to be used in your art. So I think it's, it's one of those things that, yes, we all understand on paper. But once the breakup happens, it's almost like once you go to jail, you lose all your rights. Like it's different once you break up. You know, mm-hmm. I do think and I think a healthy relationship, you can mine each other's lives. And in a, it doesn't sound like this is coming from a loving place, though. It sounds like she wants to tell her story of a breakup and she has every right to. I think she just needs to find another angle where it doesn't matter who she's talking about and that he was a comedian. It's not that it no like- bit is that important. I think that's terrific advice. Yeah. You could change the framing of the bit. If you're getting to like a series of jokes about relationships, yeah. you can ground it in some other relationship. You can change names and details to throw everyone, including him off the scent or let him off the hook. But to get to what, you know, basically, you know, another huge part of her question is she just doesn't want to be in the same room yeah. with this guy. Yeah. She, whether she's joking about him or not, whether she omits this bit while she's in town or not, she doesn't want to know he's in the room. Yeah. Sounds like even if it wasn't an abusive relationship, even if he's not stalking her, that it'll just mentally throw her. Yeah. And she would like him not to come. Yeah. She asked the club yeah. to bar him. Like if the circumstance was it had been an abusive relationship and it was traumatizing or potentially triggering for her to be in the same room with him, could a comedian ask a club to bar their ex from attending a show? I think so, yeah. I mean, here's the other thing, and, and this is, again, like I'm not right or wrong, but in my fantasy, she does the bit in a different way where it's not about him. He does show up and sees it, and it kind of cools him off, and he for, and he just stops you know, like, mm-hmm. but again, that's very specific, like fantasy that I have that is really based in nothing. So I've had this problem, not with an ex, but with a fan that was a, a little too into me, not even in a loving way. They were very um, antagonistic towards me because I didn't love Bernie Sanders as much as he did. And so <laughs> oh my God. I've been there. I have been and there. So he had, he focused a lot on me when I was in town. And, and at one point I said to the, um, you know, I couldn't stop him from buying a ticket. I, I, but I said to the uh, bouncers once I got there, here's this guy's picture. Can you just keep an eye on him? And they said, well, you know, it's either we let him in or we don't. This whole notion of we let him in, but we keep an eye on him. Like, we don't really have the staff for that. You know, that is what I would kind of mm-hmm. suggest is like, maybe she starts and asks, okay, if this guy comes in, this is what he looks like. Keep an eye on him. But it could be a matter of she just doesn't want to, she might see him from the crowd, you know? Um, so mm-hmm. I do think it is either like, having been there myself where I tried to do it midway, but so they didn't let him in and it actually did stop this guy from um, bothering me. He was so embarrassed and he was actually, I found out an aspiring comedian and he was so worried that the venue that told him to leave was going to somehow remember him and he was not going to be able to do open mics. Like it really shut the whole thing down. So that might actually help. Like it might embarrass him. I'm just trying to, you know, it's hard to predict other people. She may have more power in this situation. This She doesn't live there anymore. It's where he still lives. This is a comedy club that's booking an out-of-town comedian. That yeah. speaks to a certain level of success yep. uh, on her part. So she's the one being brought in. She's the headliner. Yeah. She's the bigger deal than just some local dude who's still doing you know open mics or still is doing the local comedy club and not touring like she yeah. is or doing out-of-town gigs like she is. She may be able to leverage that power to... Maybe shut him down or shut him yeah, up. Yeah, I think she's allowed to absolutely say, do not let this guy in. Now, here's my my thought, though. And she said it herself. She said, you know, that seems so dramatic to tell his friends not to to tell him to come, not come. Don't do any of that because men just don't understand. That freaks them out and they, they think women are crazy anyway. So if we ask anything, you know, it just cements that terrible mm-hmm. belief. So here's my thought is um, 
you know how it is in life. A lot of times something we worry about never happens. Might be way easier for him to come watch her on Zoom than really show up in public. He might not have the balls to do that. You know? So I just don't want her to worry unnecessarily, but I think she says to the club, look, it's he's not a, you know, I just don't want him here. Yeah, I don't want to. I want to have a good show. You guys brought me to town. You obviously yeah. want me to have a good show. You want the people to come yeah. to have a good time. It's probably not going to be a great show or as good as it could be if I know that he's out there watching me and I feel. Yeah. Now, and thrilled. she can say to them, like, he's a great comic or a great guy, or whatever she wants to say, like, don't let this skew your vision of him. Please don't let anyone know. You know, don't. It's tough. It's tough. This is where it comes in as a woman. Like, any little request can be seen as a big deal, as dramatic. You could say it you know, under anesthesia, the most calm you could ever be. And they'll be like, she was freaking out, you know, like, uh-huh. so I think she has to weigh, like, I think she has to get out of the um, bind she's put herself in of how do I control if he comes or not and sit and think, is there a world where I could just let it go and maybe see if he doesn't show up and then maybe save yourself some of that headache of asking the club. Speaking of women asking things of clubs, you've been tweeting a lot lately about clubs that book whole nights, whole weeks, mm-hmm. whole months without any female comics in the lineup yeah. and shaming clubs for doing that and shaming male comedians for appearing at clubs yeah. that do that. Are you having any success? Are people, bookers coming around? Well, you know, well, also, I will say, I don't want the male comedians to not perform there. I just want them, if they think they're allies, to speak up when they're there, you know, and just say, hey, okay, okay, you know, good. because clubs don't like feedback. You know, they're not comedians for a reason. They don't have the thick skin that we do. So they get 10 tweets. They're like, oh, my God, oh, my God. So um, I have heard that some clubs are taking notice, but uh, it's one of these weird things that, you know, things were getting a lot better. And then COVID happened. And a lot of clubs lost money. Some of them almost closed completely. And there's this weird, almost like unspoken thing that in order for clubs to get back on their feet, it's almost the Joe Biden thing. Okay. We cannot have a black woman president right after Trump. It's not going to happen. No one's going to vote for her. We got to get the other old white guy, but the good one. Then after Joe Biden, we might have a black president, you know, to make people feel safe voting for Democrats again. Let's get yeah, this Joe Biden so, guy to make people feel safe coming to clubs again. We're going to pack them with. Yeah, white we're going to pack them with a the white guys. They'll bring out. There's this notion that white straight males like bring out the crowds. They do if they're famous. Any comedian that's famous mm-hmm. packs out the house. Any comedian that's not famous may or may not. That has nothing to do with gender or race or gay or straight or anything. And clubs don't seem to realize this, you know. It's like they still have the same old, you know, attitude of people in the audience want to see men. And and honestly, the audiences aren't all made up of men. And I, as a woman who performs all over the country, men are fine. I've literally never had an audience member be horrified that I'm on stage. I mean, they may not think women are funny, but most people will judge you on a case-by-case basis they'll go women aren't right. funny but she is they're still awful people or or they want to see women yeah. it just feels like in a world with with, with you in it and, and ali wong in it and amy schumer in it that the question about whether people will pay money to go to a club or a big venue to see a female comedian or a woman comedian has been answered and the answer is yes and yet we have to relearn this lesson There's so many people that aren't coming out because they don't feel safe you know how many like Trans men are not coming to clubs because they don't want to be made fun of. That seems to be male comedians are obsessed with trans people, like in a bad way, you know, like 
They don't want mm-hmm. jokes about them, you know. And so it's like if you booked more people that represented everyone that exists, you know, everyone would feel more comfortable coming out. But I do think I think their clubs are starting to recalibrate, you know. But, you know, now they're back to just booking a lot of people who've been accused of sexual assault. So whenever they do that, I tweet at the club, hope you're not making the waitresses, you know, go alone in, the, mm-hmm. in that guy's green room. And, you know, it's just when Cosby said he was going back on tour, everyone was like, well, no one's going to go. I'm like, you are all so stupid. Tons of people will go and any club would have them. That's a depressing place to leave. Yeah. Uh this, con- end this yeah, conversation. Yeah. I hope I helped it all. I just wanted to give her a few things to like toss around in her brain, like balls in a dryer, you know, not <laughs> men's balls, dryer Ouch. balls, dryer Ouch. balls. As, as a ball haver, oh, that, that mental image was very <laughs> no, distressing to me personally. Nice and warm. <laughs> uh, can, you, can you stick around for a couple more questions? You take a couple Absolutely. more? Hi, Dan. I've got a best man related question. I'm a 35 year old gay guy from the East Coast, originally from Ohio. Late last year, a college buddy I've known for 18 years asked me to be his best man. He met his fiancée after I moved to the East Coast and I have never met her, but I agreed to do it. Since then, we've planned a bachelor party for late September and everything was proceeding smoothly. Recently, he said that he hoped the Delta variant wouldn't ruin the party slash wedding. I replied that at least we were all vaccinated and that I was sure most of the guests would be by then. He said that while his side would be vaccinated, he doubted that most of the people on his fiancée's side would be. Apparently, they are almost all Southeast Ohio Republicans who don't believe the pandemic really exists. Dan, I don't know what to do with this. I agreed to be his best man last year, but I just found out that half of the guests at his wedding are pandemic deniers who won't be vaccinated. I did not realize that his fiancée came from Trump-voting anti-vax pandemic deniers. I left Ohio after college to escape that environment. His fiancée is still very close with her family, and they are all definitely going to be invited. I love my friend, but I don't know what to do with this. It makes me not want to go. Especially as a gay guy, if half the wedding guests are that type of Republican, I feel very awkward about being there. The wedding is two and a half months away. Do I hold my breath and go through with it? If I back out now, I'll probably be torching this friendship, and I don't want to do that. Please help me, Dan. My first reaction to this call is no one's obligated to go to anyone's wedding and often you shouldn't even go to your own. Sometimes your own (laughs) wedding's a mistake and you should skip that one too. So the caller absolutely positively doesn't have to go to this wedding. But as a gay dude, I've been to weddings where I knew that half the people there, like the bride side of the family or the groom side of the family, did not like gay people. Yeah. And rather than like cowering in the corner, me and the other gay people were at the wedding. We were like, ha ha, fuck you. We're the future. We're a part of this, this family, the chosen part of this yeah. family. And you're all going to be dead soon. Yep. And they're going to be hanging out with us. Like we went with a spirit of like playful antagonism yeah. toward the haters rather than like worried the haters would realize we were gay and hate us extra hard and ruin the wedding. Yeah. So on that score, I would encourage the caller to just go and be super gay yeah. at this wedding. If there wasn't a pandemic, I would say that. And I would also say, not that I have any love for Trump supporters, but I'm sure you've encountered like super right-wing people that actually don't give a shit if people are gay. You know, um, yeah. they may not have gay friends. They may not understand, oh, that's a little too gay. You know, I uh, the thong bathing suit at the pride parade, you know. But in general, <laughs> they're not going to make anyone's life difficult at the wedding. And I always think it's a good idea to go show people you know, hey, this is uh, what a gay person is. Turns out it's a person. So now they get to say, well, I went to this wedding with some gay people and they seemed they ate cake with a fork like everyone else. (laughs) You know, I think... They didn't just scrape the frosting (laughs) off the cake and use it as lube during the the dance. 
<laughs> Although you could do yeah, that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great idea. Um, but I wrote a note um, to myself as you were telling me about this, and I just wrote, torch the friendship. That's my advice. We're in a pandemic. Your friend is asking you. I don't care if you're vaccinated. We don't know what these variants are going to do. It's a super spreader event for the unvaccinated. You are not obligated to go to a super spreader event. And especially if you haven't mm-hmm. met this guy's future wife. But it's two and a half months from now. All, the her side of the family could be dead in two and a half true. months if they're all unvaccinated Trump idiots in a red state. Yeah. Ass and Delta around. I, I honestly think don't do it. Don't go. You don't, you, you haven't met her. You owe her nothing. And if he's upset about it, I, I don't know. I mean, if I found out my friend was marrying a Trump supporter, I'd be weirded out as is. And then if I found out they were the anti-vax kind, that would make me go, yeah, it would suck if we ended the friendship. But would it? Because. Well, I, I don't know if the bride's a Trump supporter. Her family. Her family. Her family. Yeah. Is anti-vax. Hopefully the bride, if, if the bride, you know, if you're tr- Friend is marrying a Trump supporter. I do think we have to draw a line. That's right true. Now in the sand. But somebody who's sane and not a Trump supporter and is vaccinated themselves, they can't help who their family is. They may not want to torch those relationships when they're getting married by not inviting their Trump supporter. That's fine. But mom and dad to the to, to the wedding. But but it's I pandemic. But I, hear you, but I want to say like it, it, pandemic having a wedding super spreader event. Comedy clubs are opening. Comedians I follow. I know. Online, I notice are like putting up their dates. Aren't those potential? They sure as F are. That's why you don't see my ass on the road. You know, I have a show coming up in Brooklyn in December and it is vaccinated only allowed. Um, and they have to show their cards. And I booked this way before the Delta variant thing. And, and I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe I'll cancel them. Maybe I'll insist everyone wears a mask, even if they're vaccinated. I don't know. But yep, the comedy stuff, 100%. 100% potential super spreader events because we don't know who's vaccinated and who isn't. A lot of clubs are doing the you have to show a um, vaccine card. Mm-hmm. And some are doing this really stupid thing of or a negative test. No, no, that's not that's not a vaccine. So yeah, yeah. I think everyone should have to be vaccinated. You know, if I was going to a wedding or having my own wedding in two and a half months, I would insist on everyone who wanted to come being vaccinated. And maybe that's something that you could appeal to your college buddy to do to, to tell his Beyonce to invite mom and dad on the condition that they get fucking vaccinated because you don't want to kill. That's what I would do if I were her. And that's what makes me think she's maybe kind of irresponsible that she won't like, or I don't know, just get married alone and then have a party when this is all over. I don't know. I just weddings, the insistence that people must do this um, a at all. And B during this is just, I just, I can't, it's and and nobody has to do it. You you don't have to do yeah. it. You don't you everybody has on their head that they must do it. They must show up at a wedding. It's not a subpoena. It, <laughs> it is an invitation. Like <laughs> it does feel like one and it can feel really consequential, but you can send a fucking toaster, you can send a broken toaster if you don't like the people who are getting married, if you don't approve of the match, and not go. And you have the perfect excuse right now, caller, if you don't want to go yeah. for other reasons, you don't want to be in a room full of people who hate gay people. You don't want to be in a room full of Trump supporters. You want to be in a room half full of unvaccinated idiots. You have the perfect excuse in the pandemic. And so don't go. But again, if it was just the gay thing, I have been that gay guy yeah. at the wedding 
more than once. And if you go in with the right attitude and a little posse of your yep. own, it's actually really fun. Totally. To be the gay people at the wedding and, where half the half the folks there hate gay people can be up. And you know the right wing women would like love you because you know everyone like half the people in their life are gay and they're like, oh that's fine. You know, my hairdresser can be gay, not to stereotype, but I'm thinking of Candace Cameron Bure, who, you know, star of the many Hallmark movies who's in like a weird Christian cult that's anti-gay. Literally all of her friends are gay men. So it's like, you know, there's people have their little exceptions. Well, Ann Coulter, all of her friends and attendants are gay men. I will say to this guy, just don't go. And if that torches the friendship, what kind of friendship was this? Perfect advice. Jen Kirkman, check out her Netflix specials. There are two of them streaming right now. She writes for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime, which I am a huge fan of. I love that show. And she's host of No Fun, the Jen Kirkman podcast. Ah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jen. This was a pleasure. Hope we helped people. Hi, Dan. I'm 53. I'm bi, and I'm in a relationship with an older man. He's 68. I've recently determined that I'm a sex addict. I won't go into the whole the details, but I've been doing a lot of dumb stuff and putting myself and my health in jeopardy, and I need it to stop. So I am starting the process of recovery, which is going to be long and involved, but worth it in the end if I can get myself kind of right set up sexually. The relationship I'm in is with a man who lives two hours from me and I only see him every other week or so. We have an open relationship. It's a don't ask, don't tell type thing. My problem is, is because I have all this sort of sexual freedom, I've really overdone it. And so now as I move forward, I'm trying to figure out if the fact that we have a long distance relationship is going to make it harder for my recovery if it's actually a good thing, I don't know. He wants to stay together. I know he'll be devastated if I break up with him because of our age difference. He really thinks I'm his last best hope for a, a life with somebody. And and I love that about him, and I love him. I don't know if I feel the same way, though. But more importantly, I've just got to work on myself, and I have to work on this addiction recovery. So I guess my question to you is, do I stay with him And is it a good thing that I'm in this long distance relationship while I'm going through recovery or would it be better for me to break up, just be single, get healthy. And then if the cards are there for us, get back together. I hate to devastate him. I hate to cause pain. I hate to be responsible for a really huge disruption in his life, but I have to get better. I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to be I guess, as sexually normal as a person can be, I suppose. I just, I really, I just need to not be doing the dumb shit I've been doing lately. So I'm trying to figure out where my relationship with him fits in. I prefer the framing of sexually compulsive behavior over the framing of sex addiction. But I'm not going to argue with you about that right now. I'm going to address your question. Should you end the long-distance relationship you're in, will that aid your process here to get to a place where you feel better about the sex that you're having, where it's less disruptive, less destructive. I'm sorry to say, I can't answer that question. Only you can answer that question. Maybe that's something you could explore 
with your therapist or your counselor, what would be best for you? What's going to be most helpful for you? Not going to be helpful if the only reason you're staying in this relationship is to avoid causing this person pain. I can't imagine it'll be helpful for you if the only reason that you stay in this relationship is not because you want to stay in this relationship, not because it might be beneficial to you to stay in this relationship, but out of guilt, uh, out of, of fear, of you know, desire, a sincere and heartfelt desire to avoid causing your boyfriend pain. You also can't stay in this relationship just because he's convinced you that he'll never meet anybody else at his age. He met you at his age. He can meet somebody else at his age. And none of us are guaranteed to be partnered all our lives. There's going to be periods of our lives where we are romantically alone. Hopefully we have other relationships, other people in our lives uh, and are not literally alone, even if we are, you know, by the relationship definition that people throw around single or alone. But that's not a, a reason to stay in a relationship because you feel terrible about exiting it. You want to stay in a relationship because you feel good about being in it. Now, I'm going to devil's advocate for a second here and say it's a long-distance relationship. You only see him every couple of weeks for a weekend. The relationship doesn't seem like a very demanding one. There's a lot of space and time there where you're free to work on yourself, work on your issues, and get to a healthier place sexually. Now, I want to say that some people talk about sex addiction, sexually compulsive behavior. And when they talk about or therapists talk about or the man in the street talks about getting to a healthier place sexually, they mean getting to monogamy, getting to exclusivity getting to a whole hell of a lot fewer sex partners. What you got to do is get to a place that feels right for you, is healthy for you, is not destructive, is not disrupting your life. If you're doing dangerous, risky things, imperiling your health, your finances, your safety, the health or finances or safety of the people that you're having sex with, yeah, that is a problem. If you're having sex with a lot of people, and you enjoy that sex and you feel good about it afterwards and they feel good about it afterwards, that is not a problem. That is not sex addiction. That is not sexually compulsive behavior. Just putting that out there for people who may be listening and, and thinking that because they have a lot of sex partners, they might be sex addicts too. Not necessarily so. There are people in exclusive relationships who are damaged in them, by them, by their sex partners, by the sex they're having. There are people out there who have many sex partners and are not damaged by what they're doing. Their lives are enhanced by the intimacy, the connection, the pleasure that level of sexual activity brings them. Not the case here. Sounds like you're reeling. I wish you'd gone into a little bit more detail about what was going on in your life. Not that it's up to me to tell you whether that was a good sex, bad sex, good amount, bad amount. It's a really subjective call. But if you're feeling bad about it, that's a sign that you need to work on it. You need to get to a place where you feel better about what you're doing. And the only question you had for me was whether you should be single while you get to that place. Your reasons for staying were all about him for staying in the relationship. If you're going to stay in the relationship, you need to set those aside and figure out if you have reasons of your own for wanting to stay in the relationship. If there are reasons 
that you, after consulting with your therapist, feel that it might be beneficial and helpful for you to stay in this relationship. But if you can't find them, if they don't exist, or if staying in the relationship is going to interfere with your journey to a healthier place sexually, then you got to end it for your sake and for his. Because if you're not in a healthy place, you're not a healthy boyfriend. You might not understand that the day you tell him that it's over, at least for now. But I think if he sits with it for a little bit, even if the end of the relationship causes him pain, he'll come to understand it. Hey, Dan. I was just attacked by a friend of a friend at a bar for being racist. And being a half-breed, I've never really considered myself to be racist before. But I had mentioned earlier in the evening that I am attracted to Aryan men, that being, you know, tall white men. And that's just who I'm attracted to. And I feel like I can't control that, but it is what it is. Anyway, this person took it as an affront to them, I suppose. And it must have triggered something in them because then they took it upon themselves to try to infect my mind and take a fight with me and get me out of the bar as quickly as possible. Is this racist to be attracted to a certain type of person? You're allowed to be attracted to the people that you're attracted to. You don't have to sleep with anyone that you're not attracted to. What you got to do is figure out a way to talk about the people you're attracted to without using incendiary racist language that's going to piss other people within hearing distance off. And a word like Aryan, popularized by national socialists, by the Nazi party, tossed around a lot in the 20s, 30s. And 40s, yeah, that is a word that a lot of people are going to have an intense reaction to when you describe essentially the type of guys you're attracted to as the master race. Yeah, no, drop that word from your vocabulary. If you describe yourself as a half-breed, I assume you're being ironic about being of mixed race. And maybe you had a lot of grief thrown at you about being mixed race, and maybe you're using half-breed in the same way that a person of color might use the N-word. But maybe you're not someone that is perceived as mixed race easily in a crowd, in a bar light, and tossing that word around in a context-free environment in front of a bunch of people who really don't know you or know that you're being ironic is going to piss some people off and get you frog-marched out of a bar, particularly in combination with Aryan, which is kind of what sounds like happened here. So you need to think a little bit more about what you're doing. It's fine and not fine that you're only attracted to white guys. If that's who you're attracted to, that's who you're attracted to. You don't have to sleep with people you're not attracted to as a form of reparations, right? You do have to own, though, that a racist society and racist beauty standards shaped that, most likely shaped your desires. It's really hard to unwind that. 
it is possible and you can do it. There are some people out there who have convinced themselves they're only attracted to one type and not necessarily just white people who've convinced themselves of this or just being attracted to white people that people convince themselves of. And you're actually, if you peel back the layers, you will discover that you're attracted to many more types of people. I'm not just talking about race here. Many more types of people generally and broadly than you've allowed yourself or the culture has allowed you to know, to realize. And in a sense, that is the culture not just depriving other people of your company. That's the culture depriving you of other people, the experiences that you missed out on, the connections that you missed out on, the relationships, perhaps lifelong relationship that you missed out on because you had been brainwashed not to perceive not just the attractiveness of other people objectively, but not to even perceive your own attraction to other people because you repeated often enough that I'm only attracted to blank types until your pussy believed it. Think about it. Not saying, I'm not telling everybody you have to sleep with people that you are not attracted to. I'm just telling you from personal experience, if you think about it, if you interrogate your desires, you may discover that you're attracted to a lot more people, different types of people, than you realize. Getting back to you, caller, don't use words like Aryan. Don't use an expression, even in reference to yourself, like half-breed, you are going to piss people off using language like that. And I'm glad that you pissed people off. I'm glad there were people around at that moment who were mad at you for using language like that because it is not okay and you needed to know that. And now you know it and you're never going to do that again. You're never going to use the word Aryan to describe the type of guys you're attracted to ever again. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Juniper Glass tweets, the woman who wasn't sure she was bi because she's not into pussy, even if she likes being sexual with women and really prefers partners with dicks, regardless of their gender, that woman might like reading Girls with Slingshots, a webcomic where the character Jamie goes through a similar self-discovery journey and lands somewhere between above-the-waist lesbian and whatever sexual. Above-the-waist lesbian, what a great expression, reminds me of a straight-identified submissive guy into BDSM who told me he did play, he did do S&M with guys. He said he was bisexual from the waist up and the knees down. And I said, oh, that's great. That means you suck dick then. And he said, no, no, no. I guess I'm straight from the Adam's apple to the tip of my nose too. So I fucked him in the ear. Fueled by indie tweets, there's been a lot of talk on the Savage Lovecast recently about following follower discretion on Instagram. Does someone want to clue in ScoMo, the Australian prime minister, that his following list is public and that we can see he follows an IG model spam page? Eh, I follow some male models on Instagram myself and some male ballet dancers too for the eye candy. So I don't want to sex shame the prime minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, for wanting to look at hot women. But I will shame him. I will participate gleefully in shaming him for being a deeply shitty human being and climate change denialist who fought against marriage equality. Kill Cookie tweets, came here to rant about the massage dude in the latest Savage Love cast. But of course, at Fake Dan Savage put all my thoughts in my brain. So he said what I was thinking. Can't wait to hear listener calls on this one. Feels creepy, that call. Also, maybe fake. Maybe fake is to advice columns and advice podcasters and our readers and listeners 
what a favorite blankie or stuffed animal is to a toddler. It is very soothing to think a particular question may be fake. I do it all the time. Doesn't stop me from answering them, though. Every cue is just a really good hypothetical for every listener, save one. But yeah, sometimes telling myself, hey, maybe this is fake, makes me feel better, too. All right. Thank you for your tweets and your posts to Instagram and other social media about the Lovecast this week. We really appreciate it. And now listener response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm calling a response to the caller with the girlfriend with bad acid reflux. I have bad acid reflux that I'm pretty open about. I see a doctor for it and I have it relatively under control. My husband told me after we got married that sometimes I have really bad breath that seems like acid reflux. I still have no idea when it happens. We figured out it's the first symptom of a flare-up before any other symptoms happen. Now he lets me know when it's bad. I then cut out acid reflux triggers. I start taking Pepsid, um, and I frequently use Tic Tacs. He says the Tic Tacs help. So far, it always clears up my acid reflux after that. Now that we have this data point, my acid reflux has been much better since I stop, since I can stop it before it gets worse. As a precaution, before every in-person job interview, I take a Tic Tac. He hates telling me that my breath is bad, but I find it to be very useful information. I wish that someone told me about this symptom sooner. We also make fun of it a little bit. But I think as long as the caller is nice about it. My husband's very understanding my health issues. I I really have no problem telling you that my breath is stinky. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 771. Um, And the question about the person who recently got off antidepressants and stopped drinking and then suddenly had, you know, a lesser libido than she was used to. So I, I was actually surprised you didn't address this, but I think it might have more to do with the alcohol than the antidepressants. It might be that this person is a sexual person and the alcohol was a way that they lost that inhibition and kind of got in the mood or sort of felt out of their body in a way that they felt comfortable participating in sex and the nerves weren't there and that they're maybe just finding it harder to access that now that they're not drinking. And then maybe it feels a little bit more vulnerable and scary. Or maybe they are an asexual person who the alcohol was a way to put up with sex or to maybe make themselves think that it was fun or that they could participate in it and weren't as bothered by it. And now they're sort of coming to terms with that. So I think the alcohol could be maybe more than the antidepressants. Hello, response call for the woman whose uh, partner comes too quickly when she gives them head. Can't believe I'm going to sound more Dan Savage than Dan Savage on this one. I think that your advice was great, but I also noticed it sounds like she just really wants to give him head, that she enjoys giving him head. So maybe she needs to broaden her idea of what sex is, and maybe they don't always have to progress to PIV. Maybe sometimes she just enjoys giving him head and he comes quickly, especially since she comes pretty easily from getting eaten out. So maybe he gets her off first and then she gets him off and they call it an early night. Um, So it doesn't always have to be about how to progress the foreplay before PIV. Maybe the, um, you know, the quote foreplay is the main event sometimes. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? Two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. There are lots of ways to see my dirty little film festival hump right now. Starting on September 9th, we're heading out on tour in person in theaters 
to cities throughout the United States and Canada with the 2021 lineup from last spring. We've also got a new Hump's Greatest Hits, Volume 4, that will be streaming online starting September 10th. And we're currently streaming a summer movie mashup that has great short films from all of our little festivals, Hump, Spliff, that's our Stoner Film Festival, and Slay, our Horror Film Festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com and grab your tickets Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Jen Kirkman on Twitter at Jen Kirkman. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy Atmos, Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week. My installment of Savage Lovecast. Thank you for joining